Good morning everyone. Today's Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, "I only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There was there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death." Then the Lord said to Moses, "I will rain down bread from heaven for you." The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the 6th day there are to prepare what they bring in and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites in the evening you will know that it was the lord who brought you out egypt and in the morning you will see the glory of the lord because he has heard your grumbling against him who are we that you should grumble against us moses also said you will know that it was the lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard you're grumbling against him who are we you are not grumbling against us but but against the lord then moses told aaron say to the entire israelites community come before the lord for he has heard your grumbling while aaron was speaking to the whole israelite community they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the lord appearing in the cloud the lord said to moses i have heard the grumbling of the israelites tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread then you will know that i am the lord your god that evening quail came to cover the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp when the dew was gone thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor when the israelites saw it they said to each other what is it for they did not know what it was moses said to them it is the bread the lord has given to given you to eat this is what the lord has commanded everyone is to gather as much as they need take an omer for each person you have in your tent the israelites did as they were told some gathered much some little and when they measured it by the omer the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little everyone had gathered just as much as they needed then moses said to them no one is to keep any of it until morning However some of them paid no attention to Moses they kept part of it until morning but it was full of maggots and began to smell 
So Moses was angry with them. Each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So, so bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Say whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day the Sabbath there will not, not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instruction? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generation to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generation to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the table with the tablets of covenant law, so what it might be preserved. The Israelites are manna, ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, good morning and welcome to church. Uh, youth church, you're not going out this morning uh, because it's holidays. So you get to stay in and listen to me. Yay! Uh, Mike is my name. I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Wagga Evangelical Church. And you've joined us in the middle of a series working our way through the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And I really want you to be able to follow along with us as we go uh, in, in the Bible. So if you didn't bring one today, please go and grab one from up the back. And if you don't own a Bible, pop your name into that one. That is yours to keep. Uh, also, there are some sermon outlines that you should have got on the way in. There's pens up the back. I want you to be taking notes so that you can check that what I'm saying is from the Bible. And you can even get those things while I pray for us now. Let's pray. Father God, please help me this morning to speak your words faithfully. Help me to be clear, not clever. Please be working in the hearts of all those gathered here through your Holy Spirit, that we may trust you in the desert. That we may be captivated by your scandalous love and mercy, which is only possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. All right, as we um, look at chapters 16 to 18, manna in the, in the desert and water from the rock, 
I just want you to see two main things. Now, the first thing is God's ridiculous provision. That is, his um, abundant, lavish, undeserved grace that he gives to the people. And the second thing is the people's ridiculous response. That is, their refusal to trust God over and over again, and in fact, repeatedly blaspheme his name despite all that he's done. Those are the two things. So God's ridiculous provision and the people's ridiculous response. Then I want you to realize that we are perhaps worse than these people. And what I want you to go home with this morning is that I want you to trust God in the desert. And of course, trust God's ultimate provision in Jesus. So let's get into it. Exodus is only the second book in the Bible after Genesis, and it relays to us the Exodus, the leaving, the exiting of God's people from Egypt. And already in the passage today, God's people have already seen his mighty wonders in Egypt. Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh, that I should obey him, has been thoroughly answered. After the final devastating plague, um, God's people have been kicked out of Egypt. Uh, God makes them wander around for a little while in the desert so that Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues them to the Red Sea where they're trapped. And Moses has his finest hour where he finally trusts God and says, Be still and see the deliverance of the Lord. The sea is parted, the Israelites are saved, and the Egyptian army is drowned in the sea. God's people have seen who he is, his ridiculous provision to them, and they have a massive party. And that's always the right response, okay? Whenever anyone sees who God is really, like who he really is, that is part of the right response, partying down. God has revealed who he is to his people, the God who saves, the God who knows, the God who abundantly, ridiculously, generously provides for his people. And they're singing and dancing and praising Yahweh who has delivered them from Egypt. How long does that last? Not long. Just three days after the Red Sea and they're already complaining and grumbling. Despite God revealing himself to them through his provision, his protection, they again think, speak and act as if they have never seen him or known him at all. And that's the ridiculous response that I need you to see. But complaining really is a bit of a pattern for this people. It's their native language, you could say. Thanks, Darcy. Uh, in Exodus 2.23, they complain about slavery. That's fair enough. Uh, in 4.13, Moses complains about being sent to Pharaoh quite a lot. And he ends by saying, please just send someone else. 5.22, they complain when Pharaoh makes things harder for them. <clears throat> and Moses actually says to God, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? That's horrendous. Why have you done evil to this people? You've not rescued your people at all. And this is despite the fact that God's already told him twice that Pharaoh will not let the people go. And then uh, 6.12, Moses complains again about being sent back to Pharaoh a couple of times. And finally, 
when Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues Israel to the Red Sea. We get this complaint in chapter 14. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Are you seeing this? This is just so offensive. So as we get to the end of chapter 15, just three days after the Red Sea, it's not really so surprising that um, they're already complaining again. Have a look at it with me. God's warning and promise at Marah, Exodus fifteen twenty-two to 25. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. So this time there's no water. The water is bitter. And we see it again that their first response is always complaining and grumbling. And then I want you to notice how God reacts. God gives a way to make the water drinkable. God provides. And then he says in verse 26, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is a promise and a warning. God is saying, you need to listen to me. You need to trust me. I'm your healer. I'm your deliverer. I will not let you suffer and die. Stop complaining and trust that I have your best in mind. So as we come to chapter 16, everything's fine. They've learned their lesson. They trust God and he looks after them. No, no, that's not what happens. Go there with me now, uh, 16.1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. So it's the 15th day of the second month, which means it's just four weeks, just over four weeks since they left Egypt and just under a week since the Red Sea. So if if you can imagine, this is like if everyone here was freed from Egypt by the devastating plagues just four weeks ago on the 25th of August. And we've just passed through the Red Sea on Monday. Everyone has seen with their own eyes the incredible salvation of God, his ridiculous provision. And this what... This is what makes what happens in our passage all the more inconceivable. We read on. Have a look at it there in 16.2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. To me, grumbling seems to be a slightly generous way of describing what the Israelites are doing here. Uh, If we look at uh, 16.3, it says, The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert 
to starve this entire assembly to death. Now that is a ridiculous response. I want you to feel the offence here. This is reminiscent of chapter 14 when they said, is it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here? Here the assumption is that God has always been going to kill them. They just wish he had done it while they were in Egypt as they sat around pots of meat. Okay, putting aside the fact that they're remembering Egypt a little differently than it was, the disturbing thing here is what they're saying about God. God has always been going to kill them. There's no doubt that God is a murderer. We just wish that he wasn't such an evil murderer. Do you remember Monday, the Red Sea? Thursday, God's provision of water at Marah. Does that ring any bells at all? Despite God showing his love, his care, his provision, his protection, revealing to them his desire to save them and have a relationship with them, they don't seem to know him at all. And I just quickly want to touch on how offensive this is. Because here we have God, the creator of the universe, who has revealed himself to this people. He, by rights, should have nothing to do with them, no regard for them at all, at all, and yet he cares for them, he saves them, he breaks their enemies, he brings them out with a mighty hand, showing them his wonders. He supernaturally parts the sea so they can walk through it on dry ground. He even gives them his personal name, Yahweh, the I Am. And what do they do with it? They say, Yahweh, you're an evil murderer. If only you were merciful enough to kill us while we were in Egypt. This is seeing the grace of God over and over again and calling him evil to his face. This is the tragic and ridiculous response. Can you see this? Can you feel the horrendous offence that this is? And we see the same sentiments expressed in 17. <clears throat> we'll go there now. Uh, 17.1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sinai, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the Lord commands them to move on and camp at Rephidim where there is no water. Do they trust in the Lord to provide? Will they remember what he did for them at Marah? Maybe just pray for his provision and trust him. Have a look at 17.2 with me. It says, So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Moses replied. And then we get the same old refrain in 17.3. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst. <clears throat> then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Down to seven. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? 
Is the Lord among us or not? That's ridiculous. The whole time God has been guiding his people, protecting them, providing for them, miracle after miracle. Is the Lord among us or not? I hope you can see the incomprehensible foolishness of these people. How can a just and righteous God put up with the blaspheming of his glorious name like this? And I really love that Moses immortalizes the quarreling and the testing of God. I mean, he could have called the place uh, God will provide or water from the rock, but no, he calls it Massa and Meribah, testing and quarreling. Classic Moses. So God would be totally justified in ending it all there, blaspheming the personal name of, of the Lord, calling, that is, calling him evil. Uh, disregarding the salvation and the miracles and the provision and the protection. But God does something ridiculous, something outrageous. And that is grace upon grace upon grace. Read it with me back in 16, just after they've said, if only Yahweh had killed us while we were in Egypt, 16.4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. Down to 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp, and when the dew was gone, Thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. So the people test the Lord's patience by grumbling and, 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 and all the blasphemy. Uh, but he turns it around and he tests them. There's no prizes for guessing how they'll go with this test. Uh, verse 25 says, Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. What a surprise. <clears throat> so God sends more miracles. Bread from heaven and quail. They call the bread manna which literally means, what is it? Because they have no idea. I think it's pronounced uh, men, huh? Anyway, this is such a cool miracle. For six days of the week, the manna will appear. And if you try and keep any of it overnight, it breeds maggots and stinks. Except on the sixth day, when you have to gather twice as much so that you'll have some on the rest day then it doesn't breed maggots and stink and then on the on the rest day there'll be none of it on the ground how cool is that and then you've got manna in the morning and quail in the evening and this is one of the longest miracles that i'm aware of um have a look at um exodus 16:35. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. So this miracle lasts 40 years while they wander around in the desert. 
Now, what would this have been like? I don't think it's uh, very easy for us to imagine this because we all have food in our houses. We have food in the fridge, food in the cupboards. We've got shops with food. There's Maccas. But this, this is a million people in the middle of the wilderness. Imagine this. When you go to bed each night, you have nothing left. Nothing at all. There are no shops, no farms, there's no Maccas, no uh, food delivery service that you could call. None of your neighbours have food. In fact, there's no food you could even get to because there's wilderness in every direction. And every night, for 40 years, you go to bed destitute with absolutely nothing except for the promise of God. What was this about? Why bring the people to this point? Why make them go where there is no bread? Why make them camp at Rephidim where there is no water? Deuteronomy 8.3 relates one of the reasons behind this. Have a look with me. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you recognize that? You might notice that the end of this verse is quoted by Jesus when he is being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. But he passes his test. But the lesson for the Israelites is is that you can, that you need to trust God's promises. That's the lesson here. Trust God's promises. And it's a powerful lesson. It's the lesson that they really needed to learn. Did it work? Well, directly after this, God takes them to Rephidim, the camp with no water, and again they fail to trust God. And again he responds with grace. And I don't know what you're picturing here, but this is not the provision of a bubbler like you get at school. Here God is providing water for a million people. This is a a mighty river gushing from the rock. It's abundance and excess and extravagance. It's grace upon grace upon grace to a people who are utterly undeserving of mercy. This is the ridiculous provision. Now these events are referenced all over the Bible many times and I'm just going to give you a few here to check out and what I want you to think about is what is the instruction, what is the lesson that God wants us to learn from these events? Psalm 95, 7-9, which is also quoted in Hebrews 3, 7-9. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. And 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 3-12. 
look at that with me. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Down to 10. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Interesting, isn't it? These things happened as an example. They were written down for us. Are you getting this? This is for our instruction. We're supposed to see how foolish these people are, how ridiculous they are. It's right for us to pay them out because here's the refrain. Do not harden your hearts like them. Do not be like them. And I kind of think, well, of course, do not be like them. Their response is ridiculous. I really don't think I could be like them. Here they are, weeks or even days after seeing the power of God in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the plagues, given God's personal name. And here they are blaspheming against God. How could I be like them? How could we be like them? Well, if you think about it, we actually have seen far more than they have. They're in Exodus. The promises to Abraham haven't even been fulfilled yet. But we, we have seen the promised Messiah. We've seen God reveal himself in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen him die for sins and rise to life. We have the full revelation of God the true extravagance of his provision, not just a few miracles, but the provision of his one and only son. We have seen the ridiculous provision of Yahweh in its fullness. But we don't call him evil, do we? Surely we have that. Do you know that every time you sin, every time you decide to disobey God, you're saying something profound with your actions? You are saying that in some way, you know better than God what is good for you at that moment. That's sin. So here's what you're saying. God, you don't know what's best for me here. So I need to step in and do it my own way. Can you see that in this case, you're actually calling God stupid? You're saying he doesn't know what's best for you. God, you're stupid. The other option is much worse. God, you do know what's best for me. You just don't want what's best for me. This is saying that God is deliberately holding back good things from you. That he is mean, or even worse, that he is evil. Because he doesn't want you to have good things. So the options are, God you're foolish or God you're evil. And if this is sin, how many times have you said this to God with your actions? God, you say be content, but that's just not how the world works. I need the house and the car 
and the holidays, or I'm depriving my family. Everyone else is living the good life. You don't know what's best, Yahweh, you're stupid. You know sex is good. Everyone in the world has worked out that sleeping around is fun, but you don't want me to have that because you're mean. You just want to spoil my fun. Yahweh, you're evil. You see, our sin is how we don't trust God. God, you're stupid. God, you're evil. Every day, over and over. So our response to the God who has revealed himself to us is more ridiculous. It is right to see how foolish the Israelites were and how utterly ridiculous their response to God is. But this is a picture for us because it's a picture of us. Do you see that? We have seen his ridiculous provision in Jesus and we know his forgiveness. We've been saved from sin and death by the precious blood of his one and only son. And yet we still don't trust him with every part of our lives. We hold back, we compromise, we don't trust him and we grumble when things don't go the way we want. Like foolish children who don't understand that God has our best in mind. Aren't you glad that Moses isn't around to uh, immortalize our ridiculous response by naming some places? What would your house be called? Testing and quarreling, complaining and grumbling, or just harsh and joyless? Do not be like them. Has God ever brought you to a Rephidim? There will be times in your life when God will lead you to a place with no bread or no water. And maybe that's where you are right now. What is your reaction when there seems to be no way forward and no way out and all around is wilderness? When things pile up and desperation starts to set in, anxiety, worry, frustration, anger. Maybe you lose your job or your relationship falls apart. Cancer, says the doctor. Perhaps your anxiety or depression overwhelms you. Or the life of your loved one ends. Is it grumbling or trust that you choose in the wilderness? Do not be like them. Trust in God. I want you to see that this lesson is for us. When you have nothing left, in the middle of the wilderness... You can put your trust in him. He's got this and he's got you. Be still and know that he is God and he's here. He is the ridiculous provider. He is the rescuing God. He has shown you his heart. He's the provider of grace upon grace upon grace to the utterly undeserving. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why did God lead them to a place with no bread? Why did God make them camp where there was no water? 
There was something that they needed more than food or water. It's in the wilderness that God gives his greatest gifts. It's the lesson that Israel needed to learn. It's a lesson that you need to learn. And it's the lesson that I need to learn. He's got this and he has got you. He knows, he sees, he cares and he is here. It was never the bread or the water they needed. It was always God himself. They needed him. And all of this is, of course, pointing us to Jesus. Uh, John 4, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He talks about himself as the living water. Have a look there with me, John 4.13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And not long after this in John 6, uh, Jesus is talking about manna in the wilderness. Um, and the, the crowd has been fed by Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that. They followed him, hoping to get another free meal out of him. And they give him a not too subtle hint. Have a look at it with me, John 6.30. So they asked him, what sign will we give that we may see it and believe? They've just seen the feeding of the 5,000. What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In what way is Jesus our manna in the desert or the living water? You need to see, it was never about bread or water. Our souls are desperately searching, destitute and without hope until they find their rest in him. Jesus is the manna in the wilderness. He's like water in the desert. He comes to give life in abundance. Jesus is your portion. He is the thing that your desperate heart longs for. He is the gift and the very great reward, the only one who can satisfy the longings of your heart. And if your soul has found its rest in him, then do not be like them. Live trusting, completely assured of his extravagant, ridiculous provision to the utterly undeserving. And if you're still wandering in the wilderness without the bread of life, come and taste that he is good. Come and find rest for your soul. Come and drink deeply of the overflowing, unstoppable grace and ridiculous mercy of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we are sorry for our ridiculous response when you take us to a Rephidim. Help us to trust you in every situation. We know that you are the God of outrageous grace and ridiculous mercy. Thank you for Jesus. He is our fountain in the desert, our bread for the hungry, our rest for the weary.
and our hope for the lost. Let us be captivated by your goodness to us that we may be overflowing with grace to our destitute world. Help us to show everyone we meet where they can come for the bread of life and the living water. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.